Today, uh, we'll be looking at the first chapter of 1 John, uh, both morning and evening, as Keith mentioned. <clears throat> and one of the keys to understanding this wonderful little book is to appreciate the historical context that made it necessary to write. So I'll be providing some of that context in just a minute. The letter of uh, 1 John itself does not tell us who wrote it, but the writing style and content are strikingly similar to the Gospel of John. And that Gospel hints at John's authorship in some very clear ways, and early church fathers attribute both to the Apostle John. The information we have about John comes from both New Testament and from early church fathers like Irenaeus, as well as others. And John is very familiar to us. He is one of the sons of Zebedee, who was a fisherman, prosperous enough to have servants. In the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John and his brother James are often mentioned with Peter to the exclusion of the other apostles. So John was present at some of the key, present at some of the key events in the life of Jesus, such as the Transfiguration and in the Garden of Gethsemane. He and his brother James were given the nickname Sons of Thunder by Jesus, which suggests something about them, I suppose, when it comes to their, um, their spirit and their personality. And I was wondering, um, do any of you have nicknames from your youth? And would it tell us something about you, perhaps? It's interesting to note that James was probably older than John because when they're named together, it's always James and then John. And the normal convention would have been to name the older brother first. According to Acts, John and Peter both played key roles in the early church in Jerusalem. And when Paul visited Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion, John was still there, and he was considered to be a pillar of the church. We don't know when John left Jerusalem, but evidence strongly suggests that he ministered in and around Ephesus during the latter part of the first century. And that very possibly is the time frame in which John wrote both 1st and 2nd John. 1st John is less like a letter and more like a tract, but it seems to have been necessary because of the activities of false teachers who had left the church and were trying to seduce the, the faithful believers from those congregations to come with them. These false teachers were espousing sort of an early Gnostic doctrine that claimed to be superior to the regular Christian doctrine that people had heard. And like full-on Gnosticism, it was a little more exclusive than the regular Christian doctrine. And they had made a few changes to how we should understand Jesus. It was less offensive to its Greek audience because it softened the idea that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, somehow became man 
and was and continues to be both God and man in one person forever. The very idea was offensive to the Greek mind. Rather, they taught Jesus did not really come in the flesh. He only seemed to be human. There was no real incarnation, no divine savior who was able to die for sinners. He only seemed to die. When I read the opening verses of our passage, you'll notice that John, talking about Jesus, is countering this particular idea. John stresses what he and the other apostles saw and heard and touched. Later in the epistle, John will say, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And John will return to this theme time and time again in this letter. This heresy that John is countering came to be called docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, which simply means to seem. So Jesus just seemed to be human, and he just seemed to die. This false teaching was attractive to the surrounding culture in other ways, too. For one thing, the false teachers were very soft on God's word and God's law, even while they claimed to be sinless. So John will say things like, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The false teachers had convinced themselves that the flesh is evil and only the spirit or soul matters. So their bodily behavior was irrelevant to their Christian belief. And as they drew away from what had already become the historic Christian message, their love for God's children grew cold. And so John comments on the centrality of love in the Christian community over and over again. So to summarize, John is writing to counter this toxic and deadly heresy that is trying to present a more culturally relevant or acceptable Christ, and he will repeatedly come back to three things. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you labor to keep God's law? And do you love others? These are good questions for Christians to ask themselves. They remain cardinal tests that Christians should take. And John doesn't address any of these issues systematically. He jumps around a bit from one point to another. So he'll touch on some very profound doctrine and then just move on without a whole lot of discussion about it. But it's a very encouraging and pastoral letter that has some very familiar passages that you may well have memorized. In fact, you may may not even know where they are. They're so familiar, I think. Such as, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We'll be talking about that tonight. Uh, Later on in the book, he'll say, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That, again, is a little bit later, but that's a theme he comes back to quite a bit. So with that background, let me read our passage this morning. I'll be reading 1 John, the first four verses. 
if you want to follow along with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John begins with some very bold and powerful statements about who Jesus is, doesn't he? And that Jesus, the life-giving word, has always existed. Notice how the opening words echo the opening words of John's gospel. In John's gospel, he opens with, in the beginning was the word. And here he says, that which was from the beginning. And then he immediately pivots to the reality of Jesus being fully human. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. He could continue, couldn't he? Say, I ate with him. He grew tired at times and needed to sleep. I felt the healed scars on his hands after he was raised from the dead. In these opening words, John alludes to the fact that the second person of the Trinity gave up the power and the peace and the perfection of heaven to come here. To enter our space and time, but not as a superhero, who could leap tall buildings in a single bound, he came in humiliation. He came as the seed of the woman. He came as a helpless baby. When Herod sent troops to kill the little boys around Bethlehem, God warned Joseph. He said, take him to Egypt. Get him away from here. He's a defenseless baby and a sword can kill him. So Jesus was flesh and blood, just like you and me. But John also tells us that he is the life-giving, eternal word of God. In the first two verses, of uh, John refers to Jesus as the word of life, the life made manifest, and the eternal life which was with the Father. Again, this echoes the first chapter of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 4, when John says this, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus is life. And it stands to reason that anything outside of Jesus is not life. What was this planet like before there was life? According to Genesis, it was void and empty. It was dark and cold. It was dead. That describes us outside of Jesus. 
Jesus is the very fountain of life. And as he told the Samaritan woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So John wants his readers to know that Jesus, the eternal son of God, was a real man in every way. And any attempt to change that historical account needs to be rejected. But he goes on to explain that Jesus is also the life-giving word. As the, as the Apostle Paul tells us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, in his rich mercy, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. So what else do we see right there on the surface of these opening verses? Well, John is asserting that he, along with others, are eyewitnesses to the manifestation of these events. He and a few other men had front row seats to everything Jesus did. In the first century, there were literally thousands of people who could testify to snippets of what Jesus did and said. Paul tells us that over 500 people would have been able to testify to having seen our resurrected Lord. But John was one of just 12 men selected by Jesus to be his special witnesses of everything that he did and said and taught. They had a particular responsibility and authority to fulfill the Great Commission and to proclaim everything that Jesus had taught them. Notice how John is including himself in this group, this collective we, of all of the apostles. I'll read a few selected passages here. Uh, He starts out, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. In these statements, it's as though John is saying, we apostles and not you non-apostles, not us non-apostles. John was in this unique authoritative position to just shut down debate because of his firsthand knowledge of events. You know, and John may well have been at this point the last surviving apostle. And um, he still very boldly says, this is not just what I saw. This is what all of us saw and heard and participated in. The other apostles ended up, who knows where, in the Roman Empire, writing who knows what. But John has no fear of contradiction. He is confident in his testimony, and he knows it's true. And he knows that every one of his fellow apostles have corroborated this testimony over the course of their lives. And then I want you to notice that John transitions again to provide a couple of very pastoral reasons for writing these foundational truths. Listen again to verses 3 and 4 where he, he, he gives us some of his reasons for writing and in just his pastoral heart, you see it. 
that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We'll talk about joy in a minute. But first, let's talk about the fellowship that John wants for us. The word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia, which I think is fairly familiar to most of us. The fundamental idea behind koinonia is sharing in something with someone. It has this sense of participation with others, not just an association with others. It describes partners in a common enterprise, also those who share in a common experience. As one scholar puts it, the noun is found to denote the corporate Christian life with the thought that believers share together in certain objective realities. Isn't that a wonderful thought? It's the objectively true realities that even connect us. It's the objectively true gospel that breaks down all of the barriers that otherwise would keep us separated. It's the objectively true gospel that draws us into and keeps us in God's family. Think about this congregation for just a moment. We come from different walks of life, different professions, different parts of the city. There's one thing that connects us, and that's what the, it's the gospel, and that's what connects congregations everywhere, all over the world. There is more here, too, that he talks about. We don't just participate with one another in our Christian lives. Notice John says, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship, our participation, is with the triune God. As Calvin puts it, Whoever then really perceives what fellowship with God is, will be satisfied with it alone and will no more burn with desires for other things. It's just the idea that that takes over your heart, takes over your mind, takes over your desires. Listen to how Jesus describes this fellowship that we have with him and with the Father. This is from his high priestly prayer, which is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I'll be reading verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. That's amazing, isn't it? 
The unity that we see in the Trinity is our model. But notice, too, that's our witness to the world. And it's so critical. It's a, such a critical part of our life on this earth, you can see. That's the fellowship that we are meant for. And anything less is like C.S. Lewis famously put it. It's like children who are content to make mud pies in the garden when they could have a day at the beach. And now let's look at that final pastoral comment that John makes in verse 4. I'll read that for you again quickly. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The Christian life is hard. Taking up your cross daily and following Jesus includes sorrow and trials and persecution and self-denial. It includes this constant mortification of the flesh. But it also produces this confident hope in the salvation that has been procured for us by the life death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, which cannot be extinguished by any circumstances. And that hope produces joy. Listen to the Apostle Peter talk about the hope we have and the joy that it produces. I'll be reading from 1 Peter, um, verse chapter. And I'll read verse 3, and then I'll skip down to verses 8 and 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Skipping down. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, as we close this morning or get ready to close, I want you to notice something with me about these opening verses. They don't contain any imperative statements about what we should do or how we should act. Nothing is being commanded, yet they are completely foundational to everything else John will say in the letter. They provide the foundation for every command and exhortation to love one another, to keep God's law, to flee temptation, to keep ourselves from idols, to be honest with ourselves and others about our struggle with sin. They are a foundation to all of those things because they contain the gospel. They provide a firsthand account of the life-giving word of God who was born of a woman, just like all of us, but without sin, who lived in perfect obedience to God's law, and voluntarily subjected himself to God's wrath and anger toward us 
by dying on the cross in our place, and then was raised on the third day and showed himself alive to his disciples so that we could be reconciled to God and to one another so that we could have life. Do you believe that about Jesus? In Romans 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm not exactly sure how that works. But when the truth takes root in your heart, new life begins, and you have been united to the life-giving, eternal word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your precious word to us. Father, I thank you for the way you revealed yourself so many centuries ago, the way you kept the records of it so that it could be passed on to us and so that we could believe, so that we could hear the gospel straight from the eyewitnesses. Father, I thank you for the power of your word, and I thank you for the beauty of it, the encouragement of it. I pray, Father, that you would cause it to search our hearts. Father, that your spirit would work inside of us through your word to show us what we need. Show us what you have for us. Show us salvation in Christ. Father, I do thank you now that we have time this morning to continue in our worship and to um, see the gospel displayed before our very eyes, to see a picture of our Lord's body broken, which it was on the cross, and a picture of the blood he spilled for us in the wine. Father, I thank you for this, this Lord's Day morning, for all that you have had for us. We pray for your continued blessing on it as we continue in worship. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.